Amen. Fantastic. Well, great to see you guys this morning. How's everybody doing? Yeah? Good. Glad to hear it. Um, I was on um, Facebook this week, as you do, and uh, an unexpected uh, photo popped up. Um, you know how people kind of, they, they share pictures of different things, and you get things flash up, don't you, every time somebody changes their profile picture or a cover photo or, or something like that. And so um, my sister updated her cover photo, uh, and this photo popped up, and to my surprise, it was a picture of me <laughs> when I was about four or five years old. Um, at the expense of my own embarrassment, why don't I let you have a look at it, if that can pop up. <clears throat> there we go. You can tell I was a child of the 80s. That's uh, so my sister Joe and me in the, in the barn on my granddad's pig farm. And um, Now for me, having that picture pop up was an unexpected surprise, but it was an unexpected good surprise, because it brought back a lot of good memories. And, um, you know, I remember playing and jumping in the, in the hay bales. I remember um, going to see the pigs and, and to feed the pigs. I remember how um, on the road towards the farm, there would always be this little bridge um, on the road that we'd go to get them. And my dad would always drive just fast enough to make sure our tummies lurched um, as we went over it. And, you know, I've got a lot of good memories that come back from, from seeing a picture like that one. And, and, you know, sometimes though when people share uh, pictures, it, it can be a really nice surprise. But how many of you have also had one of those occasions where someone shared a photo? And they shared a photo to, to celebrate something in life. How nice, uh, how good the food is that they've made. Or how, um, how this great new room that they've just had decorated. Or how perfect their children are with this great family photo. And instead of it being a nice surprise for you, all it does is make you think about what it is that you don't have. All it does is make you think about how you can't match up. All it does is make you, you, you kind of add to the, to the pressure that you, you feel of somehow how you're supposed to do it all and be it all and make it all fit in and you just wish that your life could be perfect like their life appears to be. If that's something you've ever experienced, maybe you can relate to uh, the lady in this video.
Pizza. We're not having pizza. I'll give you ice cream and pizza. No, it doesn't matter if it's Well, you don't even know. It has that. Well, it does taste good. I'll clean the house down. Thank you, Kayla. Well, we want pizza. Well, we're not having pizza. Anyone ever felt like that? We don't always know what's really going on behind the photo, though, do we? And um, as, as we saw in the, in the video. You know, but whether it's um, Facebook, whether it's um, face-to-face, or whether it's in any kind of context where you're rubbing shoulders um, with people, don't we all have a tendency to try and compare ourselves to the people around us? And society does the same thing, and it often goes one step further, and it almost creates labels and categories of people that you have to try and, and fit into. You know, you've got the, the wealthy, you've got the successful, the people who have it all, the people who seem to, to manage to go to the gym and clean the house and, and have perfectly behaved children and, uh, you know, hold down a job and cook good food all at the same time. And then you have the, the kind of the poor and the unpopular and the forgotten. You have the people who feel like they are just... I don't know, they can't ease through life getting it all right. It's just a struggle just to get from one day to the next. And this kind of division in society is nothing new. Um, In fact, we're going through a series called Just Do It at the Moment, looking at the letter of James. And this letter, while it was written 2,000 years ago, we find the same kind of division going on. The same kind of division between the haves and the have-nots. The same kind of tendency for, for, to kind of have these people, uh, who feel successful and then these people who feel like nothing. And to compare themselves one to the other. This tendency to, 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 for the people who are, uh, feel like they have nothing to be envious and look up to the people who are successful and just say, I wish life could be like that. And this tendency for those who are successful to just kind of rub shoulders with other people like them and look down on, on others. It's a challenge that people have always faced. James writes this, and hopefully you can pop up on the screen behind me. James writes this in chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. And when James talks about the lowly brother... He means the poor brother, the one who's been laid off, the one whose career is going nowhere, the one who's been pushed down and pushed aside, the one who's ashamed and hurting, the one who feels alone and broken and like they just can't match up. And some of you might know very well what that feels like this morning. You may feel like you're nothing special. Like you can't match up. Like nobody really cares about you or your opinion. You're overlooked. You're lowly. And if that's where you are at, what is James's practical advice to you? What is it that he says you can take away and just do it? And you might think that James would have given them advice on how to fix things. On how to become a success in the world. How to acquire money and make people like you. How to manage to extend the hours in the day so you can fit everything in. But instead he says, if you are feeling lowly, what you need to do is boast. And doesn't that sound strange? 
You feel like you're worth nothing. You feel lowly. What have you got to boast in? What have you got to celebrate? How can you boast in a time when you're not up here, you don't feel like you're on top of the world, but actually you're down here? And you feel lowly. But you see, when James encourages you to boast, he doesn't mean that you should go around and say, look at me. Look what I've done. Aren't I amazing? This isn't about boasting in yourself and trying to tell yourself that you're so amazing so that you feel better. James is saying we should boast in Jesus. Boast in what he's done for us. Boast in the fact that God loves us and sees us as special and precious children. And at the end then realize just how privileged we are and what a high position we've been given. And say, wow, isn't that amazing? God wants you to receive a gift A gift of your identity. A gift that he has for you in your identity. For you not to to label yourself the way that other people say you are. Not to label yourself with the identity that society gives you. Or to label yourself with the identity maybe that you give yourself based on your own feelings of what you've achieved or you've failed to achieve. When you compare yourself to other people. Instead, God wants you to take the truth of Jesus and to start to see yourself the way that God sees you. Now, this is kind of like God speaking through the words of James to say to his children, Kids, I know you're discouraged. I know you feel depressed. I know you feel lowly. You feel like you've been rejected and You're looking at all the people who are rich. You're looking at all the people who seem to have it all in life. And you're asking yourself, why is life this way? Why is life like this for me? And if we're really honest for a moment, we all deal with that to some extent, don't we? We all have that moment. You know, if I asked you to fill in the blank, I wish I was... what would you fill the blank with? Uh, I wish I was more beautiful. I wish I was more intelligent. I wish I was uh, more funny. I wish I was more rich. I wish I was more popular. I wish I was more confident. I wish I was more successful and that I could just fit more in and I could have it all. You know, however you would fill in that blank indicates the way in which you feel lowly. And God, as your heavenly Father, is wanting to come alongside you and to show you the truth. He wants to help you to see yourself as he sees you. It's kind of like a dad whose whose child comes home. Comes home from school or maybe a group that they've been to with, um, with other children along there. And they walk through the door and you can just tell they've had a rough time. You can just tell that they feel lowly. Their shoulders are slumped. They're looking at the floor. They just look discouraged. And this is a father's moment to put his love into action. This is his opportunity to get down on their level and to say, 
what's wrong? What's, what's happened? And maybe the child turns around and, and says, they, they said I'm ugly. To which the heart, father's heart begins to break a little bit and he says, you're not. They're lying. You're beautiful. Well, they, they, they said I'm stupid. They're wrong. You're not. You're amazing. Well, they, they, they said I'm worthless. Oh, if only they knew. You're priceless. They, they don't want to be around me. Well, that's okay, because I don't want to ever have to face life without you. What the father is doing is trying to take off the spectacles that have formed on the child as they've begun to accept the way that other people see them and made it their identity. And he is trying to replace them with the spectacles of how he sees them. And he's saying, I need you to see yourself the way that I see you. And God is saying the same to us. He's saying, look at what it is that I've done for you. Look at how I love you. Look at how I put that love into action. Look at how valuable you are to me. To me, you're not lowly. You're exalted. To me, you're not worthless. You're priceless. You're not somebody that I can just live without. You're somebody that I love and I want to be in relationship with for all of eternity. So much that I was willing to suffer on the cross to make that a possibility. That's who you are to me. And that's why James says, if you identify with being lowly, then boast. Just do it. Take your eyes off of what you don't have. Stop comparing yourself to the people around you and start to see yourself as God sees you. Start to realize how valuable you are to him. And that while you may feel low, he has lifted you up. He has exalted you to have a seat in heaven that you can look forward to enjoying for all eternity. And that is something worth boasting about, isn't it? That's your real identity. A child of God. So start boasting. The second group then that James talks about in his letter uh, it would have been probably a lot smaller in, in size to the first one um, in terms of the guys who first read the letter when it was open. But in a lot of ways, I think it would have been the bigger challenge to address. He talks about the rich. Now, no one wants to be lowly or poor. And I think anybody here who's maybe been feeling lowly, you're in a place where you were ready to hear the message that that's not true and that God loves you. Because no one wants to be there. You're ready to hear the message that that's not your identity in Jesus. But to be rich and to be successful and to be popular, to be someone who seems to have it all, that's a much harder thing to let go of. But where the person who is poor and and, and lowly might be be tempted to self-pity or to blame God for, for what it is that's going on and the problems that they have, the person who's secure in life, the person who's popular, the person who has money in the bank is tempted to forget God and to become self-reliant. 
And while in James's day, I think these groups would have probably been clearly two distinct groups, I think for many of us, the reality is that at different times, we can probably fall into both camps. We have times when we feel lowly. And we need to hear that message to, to boast in who it is and we are in Jesus. But we also, at the same time, may well be rich. And I imagine that very few of us here would um, really consider ourselves to be rich. But for most of us, myself included, the reality is that we probably don't have to worry about where our next meal is coming from. Society might not label us as rich when we begin to compare ourselves to everybody who is around us, but we are financially secure. And so I think that what James is talking about when he addresses rich people is extremely relevant to us. I know it's certainly relevant and a challenge to me. You see, the reason that being rich, the reason that money is so dangerous is because it attempts to persuade us that it can provide security. That because we have it in the bank account, we don't need to worry. We can feel secure. It attempts to persuade us that it can provide the security and the comfort that God promises to give us. And you see, the issue for James then isn't about being rich or successful or popular. There's nothing bad in those things. The danger is when we start to place our security in those things. When we trust in them and we place our identity in them. The, the, the reason that it's dangerous is because, as James says, all of our riches will pass away like a flower of the grass. And at some point, these things that we've come to put our hope in, or as James says, that we boast in and we take pride in, will fail us. Either in this life, or when we die for all eternity. And James is even more strong in how he talks about it later on in his letter, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. This is what he says, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. What a way to get someone's attention. It says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. It's not a pretty image. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You don't get much more blunt than that, do you? Can you imagine being one of the rich people in the church when this letter was opened and read out? you'd be starting to feel pretty worried, wouldn't you? But James is trying to get them to understand that if you have so much stuff that you can't even use it all, you have so much stuff that you have clothes that you never even wear, James is saying, you rich people have so many clothes that the moths eat them. You have clothes that you don't even look at, let alone wear. You have so much money that it just sits there doing nothing. It's going to corrode. You should weep and wail at the waste. Because it is going to be evidence against you. James is saying God is not happy with people who have more than they need. Who store away what they have just in case. And the truth is that I'm guilty of this. 
And most of us in this room have probably done it at some point. We've all had a case of just-in-case-itis. We've all stored things away just in case, just in case we get sick, just in case we're made redundant, just in case I'll store this away so that I can be secure. And yet what we read here is that we, what we have stored up just in case, what we think is a good thing and we think makes us secure, will be evidence against us that we have placed our trust and our security in things that will pass away like a flower of the grass. Will be evidence against us that we have gone through life with an attitude of me, myself, and I. Holding on to the blessings that God has given us for ourselves to such an extent that they are wasted at the end of our time rather than using them for others. What was once a source of security and comfort, what was once something that you could boast in and take pride in, becomes a source of embarrassment. You may have planned for the security of your future, but you didn't plan far enough. You didn't plan for eternity. James doesn't hold his punches, does he? And I have to admit that I find this an incredible challenge. You know, but it was when James addressed the, the, the lowly, the problem wasn't with being poor, it was about that attitude in the midst of it. And so the problem with, is not being rich. There's nothing wrong with enjoying God's blessings. There's nothing It's good to be responsible with the things that God gives us. The issue is our attitude to the blessings that God has given to us. The issue is whether we hold on to these things for ourselves, whether we place our security and our identity in them. Whether, as James puts it, we boast in them and take pride in them. And instead, the rich are called to do something just as strange as the lowly were. He called the the lowly to boast in their exaltation. And he calls the rich to boast in their humiliation. You know, these people who are used to having it all, these people who are used to uh, others looking up to them and thinking how great they are and admiring them and all that they've managed to achieve, these people who are used to feeling secure to boast in their humiliation. James calls the rich, and I think so many of us with them, to take their eyes off of the things that they have, off of their success, their popularity, their wealth, all the different ways in which they feel rich and secure and like they've made it, and to instead fix their eyes on Jesus to find their identity in Jesus and how in him we come to realize that on our own, all that we have is worth nothing. That we can't buy forgiveness. We can't earn our way into heaven. We realize that no matter how popular we are, we can't charm our way into a relationship with God. And when it comes to what really matters, when it comes to the things which are going to count for eternity of eternal value, all of our riches, our successes, all the things that we take pride in and make us secure, count for nothing. And instead, when we humble ourselves and when we admit that we are weak and our riches count for nothing, when we recognize that we need Jesus, that's when it is that we receive everything. Everything that matters. We receive his forgiveness. 
We receive his love. We receive eternal life. We receive a relationship with him. And so what is it that's worth boasting in? Not our riches, but our humiliation. Because we begin to realize that when it comes to what actually matters, our riches count for nothing. But in our humiliation, as we humble ourselves before God, we gain everything. Essentially, what James is saying is whether you are lowly or whether you are rich in life, as someone who follows Jesus, that is not your identity. Your identity is that you are a child of God. And in everything that Jesus has done for you, you're not defined by your car or your house. You're not defined by your clothes. You're not defined by what others think about you. You're not defined by the money in your bank account. You're not defined by your success or your failure. All of those things will pass away. Eventually, at some point in life, they will fail you. Your identity is in Jesus. No matter what happens, you have been approved of by the only person that really matters. You are loved and you are secure. You know, that's my identity. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then that's your identity too. But as honestly as I can say that that's true, I have to also be honest and say, I still feel the pull. I still feel the pull to have the latest gadgets. I still feel the, the pull to, um, to buy nice things and to have money saved away in the bank account so I feel secure. And we're constantly surrounded by adverts and messages in the media that pull us in that kind of a direction. And so I need, and what I think all of us need, is to keep being reminded To keep being reminded that our identity and our security is not in those things. But it's in Jesus. And one of the reasons that I think it's so important that we we hold on to this perspective is because when we choose to follow Jesus, we are not just saved from something, but we are saved for something. We are saved for a purpose. And, And you know, God is on a mission and he invites us amazingly to be a part of his mission and to join with him and to work with him in his mission. And his mission is to push back the darkness in the world with the victory of Jesus. And so he invites us to use our gifts, to use our talents, to use our resources, to use our time to participate in his mission. To participate in his great war on darkness. To participate in pushing back the darkness in the rest of the world. You know, some of you might have um, have spotted that pretty much wherever I go, I, uh, I have this bag with me. It tends to stand out and grab people's attention. And um, it's uh, obviously a bag covered in comic strips. And um, so you might get an idea that I quite like comics and superheroes and all that kind of jazz. And, you know, it's got some of my favorite superheroes on it. Iron Man, Spider-Man, Captain America, all the usual kind of guys. Now, superheroes for the last few years have gone from being the realms of, uh, of nerdy geeks who kind of hide their comics away in a closet to being public and displayed and something which everybody seems to in- enjoy. And, and I think one of the things that, that, um, that draws everybody to superheroes is the fact that in those stories, in those stories that we love, it, that we see something that we actually really value. 
what we really desire at a, a deep level. Because we see risk and self-sacrifice for the sake of others. And at a deep level, I think that's attractive to us. It's what we value and it's what we admire. And yet there is this constant pull within us that pulls us back again and again towards comfort and security. And if we're not careful, we begin to forget about our purpose. We begin to forget about pushing back the darkness. We begin to forget about the great war. And I think when it comes to our resources, God is calling us to have a wartime mindset. And you might be surprised to know that I wasn't around during the the great wars, so I can't speak from experience. But you know, when you, when you, I've tried to my, my granddad who was there, and when you read about people and you, you look at different things and you see what people did and how the country pulled together in a wartime mindset. Because they had a sense of purpose. They had a sense that they, of what it is that they needed to do to achieve the victory. And they had this sense of that they needed to pull together. And so there was rationing and everybody worked and gave and sacrificed for one purpose. To win the war. People were so gripped by a sense of purpose that the whole pull towards me, 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 the whole pull towards keeping the best for myself and making myself secure and storing up things for my own security was put to one side for something greater. And I think James is calling us as followers of Jesus to be gripped by this sense of a greater purpose, a purpose that is bigger than ourselves. And what does it look like then to live life in that kind of a way? And to be completely honest with you, I don't fully know. It's so far against and so different from everything that we see around us. But it's something that I'm exploring. And it's something that I want to invite you to join me in a journey on, to discover what that looks like. And so I want to finish by sharing the story of one man who I think put this into action. And give you some practical ideas on a good starting point. The man whose story I I want to share um, just a little bit of is John Wesley. Uh, John Wesley was around in the, in, alive in the 1700s, uh, and God worked through him in incredible ways to, to see thousands of people, um, in this nation, um, be introduced to who Jesus is and give their lives to him. But God also worked through him in incredible ways um, for social action. And John Wesley gave so much of his resources to uh, put God's love into action in practical ways. And, and while John Wesley is famous for a lot of his teachings and things, I think what it is that challenges me and stands out to me more than anything about John is his life. And so I want to share one example from that with you. In, in his early life, Wesley was a, a fellow at Oxford University, and um, he had a good income, and he enjoyed spending the money that he had on all the usual kind of things that the guys around him would have been doing on tobacco and brandy and playing cards, all the usual stuff. Essentially, he was like the rich man that James is talking about who has more than he needs and keeps it all for himself. And then one day, he he'd just finished buying some pictures for his room. I had been out to town and bought these paintings. Um, when a chambermaid came to his door. Uh, and it was the middle of winter. Uh, and the chambermaid was wearing nothing but a thin linen gown. 
And Wesley was moved in, in his heart to, to buy her a coat. And so he reached into his pocket to get some money to give her and discovered that he didn't have enough left. And it struck him that God was not pleased with how he had spent his money. And so he asked himself, and this is a quote, so you'll have to bear with the old English. But he asked himself, will thy master say, well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast adorned thy walls with the money that might have screened this poor creature from the cold. Oh, justice. Oh, mercy. Are not these pictures the blood of this poor maid? Wesley was so convicted by God that he became convinced that all that God gave us, all the resources that we have, whether it be money or time or energy, he gave us for the sake of the poor. That we were to spend only what we genuinely needed on ourselves and then give away everything else. And he essentially defined what we needed as ensuring our own family was clothed, fed, and sheltered. The next priority, he said, with your money is to pay off any debts that you have to other people. After that, make sure you've got what you need to run your business so that you have an income coming in and everything else is to go to the poor. And and after this event, Wesley sat down and he worked out, based on that kind of criteria, what his income was and what it is that he needed. His income was about £32 a year. And he decided, I only need £28 a year to live on. And so I'm going to give away the other four. And he made the decision that no matter what his income became, he would never keep more than £28. And then everything else he would give away. Because that's all that he needed to live on. And he stuck to his decision. And over the years his income doubled. And then it tripled. And at his height he was earning over £1,400 a year. Which made him one of the wealthiest men in the country at that time. And yet he never kept more than £28 for himself. And on the day that he died, he was found with a tiny bit of change in his pocket. And that was all the money that he had to his name. He was convinced that everything that he had came from God and was to be used for God's purposes and that he could rely on God for his own security and provision. So how dare he waste the things that God had given him? Now, I'm not suggesting that you try and live on 28 pounds a year. It wouldn't go very far these days, would it? But it gives you an example of one man who was so gripped by the truth of what James is writing about that he made the decision to live it out. He made the decision to just do it. Here's what I would like to encourage you to do. To make sure that you're putting into action what we've been talking about today and put in place safeguards so that we don't allow ourselves to give into that constant pull to find our security and our identity in our bank balances and the things that we have. So this is what I want to encourage you to do. And I know some of you do this already, which is fantastic, but it's always good to be reminded and to revisit it. The first thing is to pick a percentage of your income that you're going to give away. Uh, You'll often hear people talking about 10% uh, because that's the example that God sets in the Old Testament and that's a great starting point. How amazing it is when we begin to grasp the truth that everything belongs to God that he allows us to keep 90%. But if that seems scary, then 
I'm not precious about that percentage, but choose something, anything. Choose 5% or 2%, but choose something, a percentage, and stick to it. Once you've chosen one, then make it a priority. Make it the first thing to leave your bank account. And the reason I think it's good to make it a priority is because it says to God, you know what, God, I know that I have more than I need, but I also know that there is this constant pull for me to buy more and to have more. And so if I don't give this away first, I'm going to accidentally spend it on myself. It's just the reality of the world that we live in. And then what I'd love to encourage you to do is to sit down regularly, maybe once a year, and evaluate your giving with a view to make that percentage bigger. Or to add another thing that you're going to give to. I know people who have something like a generosity fund. And so not only do they, they, they get tithe and give money to the church, but they also put money aside and say, we've got more than we need, and so we're going to put some money aside every month so that when somebody else is in need, we've got something that we can give to them. I think that's amazing. The key thing is that giving a percentage of your income is not about ticking a box which says I'm doing something that I'm meant to be doing as a Christian. It's about saying to God that you are joining him in his mission to push back the darkness in this world. That you have a wartime mindset. That you are willing to sacrifice for the sake of others just as he sacrificed for us. And that's why it's so important that we regularly evaluate what it is that we're giving because otherwise it just becomes that tick box that we forget about. And instead we ask ourselves, is that the way that I'm living? And if not, how can I change things? Now James makes it abundantly clear that one day everything that we have is going to fade away. And when that day comes, our opportunity to be generous our opportunity to demonstrate to God that we get it and that we share his heart and his mission will be gone. And so I know that when faced with all of the things that pull at me, all of the things that pull at me to spend money on things that I I fancy, on the adverts and the things which do grab at my attention, that because of all of those things, I need to take practical steps to make sure that on that day when I stand before God, I'm not embarrassed by what it 